Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Imam Tom Fukini. Welcome back, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be back. Well, for those who don't know, um, Imam uh, Tom uh, has kindly agreed to continue discussing the books that have made a significant difference to him intellectually. And apart from the intrinsic interest in what he might say, it will hopefully encourage us all to read good books uh, for ourselves. And for those who don't know, Tom accepted Islam in his early 20s, and he holds a BA in political science from Vassar College and a BA in Islamic law from the Islamic University of Medina, where he graduated in 2020. And he's also a qualified chaplain. And Imam Tom is currently the Imam and Program Director of Utica Masjid in New York, obviously in America. Now, he has a fantastic YouTube channel entitled uh, Itika Masjid, if I got that right, which I will link to in the description below. Now, I never recommend YouTube, so but on this occasion, <clears throat> I do say, please subscribe and you won't regret it. So without um, any more ado, Tom, uh, I know you have some notes uh, prepared about a particularly interesting book, which I have started to read myself which I think um, you'd want to say a few words about. So um, over to you, sir. Sure. Well, after Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, mm -hmm. um, you, we had talked about kind of the books that had made the largest impression on me previously, and mm. uh, certainly up there is this by Talal Asad uh, called Formations of the Secular. And uh, we kind of kicked around the idea of, okay, let's have a second session. What book should we read or, you know, what book should we discuss? And, this one came to mind because even though it was written almost exactly 20 years ago, um, mm. it is very, very timely, especially for everything that has been unfolding in uh, kind of the Muslim Anglosphere in the past month or two. Mm. Uh, at least here in North America, we've had something of a reckoning, I think, with uh, the LGBTQ lobby uh, and movement with the Muslim uh, population. So I think going back some years, most of the kind of uh, dua and scholars, they were fairly, um, I, I think they underestimated uh, where all of this would go. Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of took a fairly soft stance on things. Um, and we've kind of reached a point now where it seems, and I hope that the tide is starting to change, where mm -hmm. we've had a lot of people kind of come out and say, um, you know, okay, no, this has to stop. And we've had certain flashpoints, um, things happening in Canada as well, which we'll probably get to in a bit, um, that have, have kind of stirred a critical mass, what I hope is a critical mass to start pushing back and asserting themselves. And what sort of struck me as significant was that if you listen to um, many of the folks who are on the scene in the North American kind of Dawa scene, folks who are way more knowledgeable than I am uh, about Islam and have studied way longer than I have. I mean, <laughs> have been studying for longer than I've been a Muslim. So I don't mean to uh, take anything away from anybody, but um, I hear certain, um, I guess, political ideas or ideas that are kind of uh, common knowledge or supposedly conventional wisdom keep being regurgitated regarding the arrangement of secular politics or religion within secu a secular society. Mm. And um, with all due respect to everybody involved, uh, that ideas that are, that are quite naive, 
and ideas that don't really illustrate that we've got a mature grasp as a Muslim community as to how politics in a secular space work, uh, how religion can and cannot and does and does not enter into uh, politics in a secular space. Uh, and so I thought that it would be a really opportune time to revisit this book uh, and sort of uh, reacquaint myself with something that had, you know, shaped me in ways that I can't even account for at this point, you know, but, um, uh, but also thinking that it would give us some novel and interesting ways to look on, look at how things are, are going on now. Um, mm. So, and that's honestly uh, what I found uh, to, to be frank, right. And yeah. even just from the introduction, you know, uh, he kind of uh, the author, he talks about how are we conceiving of this thing that's called secularism and many of the points that I that I heard um, repeated by by famous, more qualified speakers uh, and scholars than myself mm. is kind of this taking secularism at its word for being a simple, clean break yeah. and separation, right? Secularism as separation, right? So, you know, the the religious commitments are going to be se separated from the political ethic, mm. and that's what's going to enable us to all get along. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and when we talk about a lot of people have remarked, uh, this comes into play and is significant when we're talking about, well, okay, we might personally disagree with homosexual unions or uh, transgender, you know, ideology or, or surgery or these sorts of things. But do we have the right then to assert our uh, political will or to assert our personal moral convictions in law? Right. And I hear most people saying, regretfully, I hear most people saying that, no, they have to be completely separate, mm -hmm. is that I can have my own personal morality and ethics, and it, and then political rights are an entirely different thing. Mm -hmm. um, so this is kind of taking for granted this kind of assumption that a secular sphere or a secular politics or a secular society is one of separation. Uh, that is true. That it is. Can, can I just be before you continue? Thank you for this. I just want to introduce people to this book. And I've actually okay. got my own copy. Okay. Uh, here, here it is. Snap. Uh, format is a very unglamorous title, um, which betrays fascinating content. Form uh, formations of the secular Christianity, Islam, and modernity is the subtitle. Mm -hmm. The author is a chap called Talil Assad, who is. Uh, distinguished professor of anthropology at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. So he's actually from the same part of uh, the, the U.S. as yourself. And it's published by Stanford University Press. Um, as you say, it was published a while ago, 2003, anyway, here. And uh, without going through all the chapters, but the, the first section is on the secular, what that is. He defines it, thinking about secularism. And then he uh, goes into the various religious um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply challenges uh, and understandings of that so it's a very richly uh narrated book uh, it is actually quite readable surprisingly um and um so i i've read the introduction and i actually do recommend it if you uh wanted a more theoretical understanding of the issues so just wanted to um introduce people to that book you can easily google it it's available mainstream publishing platforms as well i've discovered 
Yes, thing. thank you. Yeah, I, I get carried away easily with this book. Uh, for anybody who wants a bird's eye view of the whole book, uh, so he essentially divides the book into thirds. Mm. Um, so the first third is about the secular, kind of as a as a as a ontological or whatever we're going to call it category, and then the second third is about secularism. So that's the political project which seeks to advance or enshrine or institute the secular, something called the secular. And then the third, the final third is about uh, secularization. So it's about historically, how does secularism play out? And he looks at some case studies, I believe in Egypt and otherwise. Um, So yeah, so in the intro, he talks about this kind of, okay, this is how secularism kind of accounts for itself as this kind of separation, as this kind of break from the past. The past, we had... um, Religious violence, right? Like the, the thing that we're all afraid of, uh, religious intolerance, people who were not able to live together with disparate religious commitments. And so in came secularism and saved the day. It found us a, an arrangement where everybody could privately believe what they wanted and publicly not kill each other, right? That's kind of the, the account that they would have you believe. And so Esed says, now, hold on a minute. It's not that simple that... The secularism is not merely about separating religion or religious commitments. Actually, uh, the secular or secularism is as much about producing certain commitments and certain religiosities, closing down others. So he kind of says that it's about um, <clears throat> three things that he that he kind of focuses on: that secularism produces new concepts of religion that did not exist before. Uh, it produces new concepts of ethics that did not exist before. And it produces new concepts of politics that did not exist before. And all of these new concepts, they form certain imperatives, right? They are uh, guaranteed by certain actions and threatened by other sorts of things. And so they need to be um, maybe defended with a certain type of violence, even depending on, uh, on, on what's going to happen. But the, the main idea, and we actually, to, you know, to, to bring it to, to bear and to make it very obvious for people, uh, people might say, well, how does secularism produce a new kind of religiosity? Well, let's see what exactly was happening in Canada recently, right? This past week or this past two weeks, we have the Canadian government, supposedly a secular government, who is trying to actually teach Muslim children that uh, it's okay to be Muslim and not straight, or what if I'm not straight, or all these sorts of... And there was a poster with a supposedly homosexual uh, Muslim couple on it, that Mm. there was a big petition, and they eventually got to be uh, taken down as as offensive. Here we have the the secular government producing a type of religiosity, Mm. right? Mm. Uh, a, A type of religiosity that uh, is unprecedented, did not exist before. Right? So we can't accept, we can't accept this, uh, the, the, the surface level claim that secularism is just about separ- separating what's religious from what's uh, not, or separating religion from politics. No, it's much, much more complicated than that. And that's what the author is <clears throat> striving to uh, get us to understand. And of course, I mean, there's the obvious point, it's the usual whipping boy. Uh, France, of course, which is the uh, you know the 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 epitome of of secularism. Yes. They would certainly see themselves directly telling Muslims uh, in France, uh, imams in mosques, 
what they can and cannot say about their own faith. And if they don't say the right thing, they're literally expelled from the country, as an imam was literally weeks ago, simply for reciting the Quran and Hadith um, on gender relations, which uh, allegedly offended the French state. And the man was literally deported. Um, so there the state is managing and crafting the religion into an acceptable secularist form. Uh, and the penalties uh, are ultimately violence, physical removal from your home and expulsion from your country. I mean, that's pretty extreme. Right. Yeah. Who, who could call that tolerance? Right. And so you see that mm-hmm. in a certain surface level, there is this whole um, self-perception or maybe we can say like legitimizing discourse. Like what do secularists want us to believe that secularism is about? Or maybe we can call it a myth. Right. This the secularist myth. But then you have to actually look at what's going on in the reality of it and ask ourselves, how different is it really? Um, Or what are the points where there's overlap? Okay, there's this other type of intolerance going on, or perhaps even just the contours of the map have changed. Who gets to be tolerated and who doesn't? Perhaps granted, granted, you know, uh, we're talking, you know, uh, 1600s England and and Europe, you know, yes, bloodbath, you know, when it comes to different creeds and different religious commitments. And we could say that certainly religion was the cause of intolerance, or we could say that um, if religion was not the cause, then it was at least used to legitimize a lot of violence and bloodshed and things like that. But it doesn't necessarily logically follow that secularism would have any less of a hand in violence or intolerance or anything like that, right? Is violence, uh, do, does religiosity have a monopoly on violence such that if we remove religiosity, then suddenly we're going to live in peace and prosperity? That seems to be the assumption. Uh, and I think we've lived long enough now in, <laughs> in secular societies to find that, that that's very much not the case. Uh, it's simply shift, shifted the map as to what types of violence are seen as acceptable, uh, necessary even, Right. And what types of violence are seen as gratuitous, barbaric and need to be kind of corrected and and removed. Um, So with all that being said, uh, he situates uh, the secular project. And I really appreciate that he goes into this. Um, Somebody had recently asked in a WhatsApp group that I'm in. Well, uh, does that mean, let's say we can say that there's a precedent for secularism within Islam? That was the claim, right? Because there's deen and dunya. So we can separate between uh, what is secular and what is religious. Perhaps we can translate it into that idiom. And it might appear to be a similar thing, right? Um, But Esad makes the point, and it's a significant one, that what we're talking about here is not describing reality. We're talking about a hegemonic political project. Right, so he he talks about the situating secularism as a political goal within modernity and the West. Okay, so you always have your like your your group of academics that says, hold on now, like the West is not really a coherent category, right? You know, you have uh, I don't know the Basque country in Spain; they're not really part of the dominant cultural West. Or you might have um, you know Mexico; they're just as much West as uh, the United States of America. So how are you going to use this concept called the West? And they do the same thing with modernity. They say, well, what do you mean modernity? Like we have uh, India is also has modernity and these other places have modernity. And you can't just say that modernity is a European thing. As it says, you're missing the point. We're not trying to describe a reality that exists. We're trying to account for a hegemonic political project. Hmm. Right. So, you know, the West is an idea yet to be realized. 
Europe, even, is an idea that's yet to be realized, right? Uh, who's Not all of Europe is part of the EU. Not all of Europe is a cohesive <laughs> cultural, you know, uh, monolith or even subscribes to the same values. Not at all, right? Ukraine and Russia have, you know, bore this out. Um, and the same thing with modernity, right? Modernity is the same. Modernity is a hegemonic project. It doesn't do us any good to stop and say, well, wait a second. Well, these other people have modernity. It doesn't matter. People are dying. People are dying because some people in the world that have a lot of power think that modernity is a project that makes it worthwhile to kill other people in certain circumstances, yeah. or that the West is a significant enough project to impose violence upon other people who don't get in line with the project. Right? Yeah. And so We've seen this in, in Britain, at least with Tony Blair in the past and, and uh, other politicians who uh, subscribe to what some people call a neocon agenda, which is to export freedom. Uh, right. to the rest of the world with military force. And that mm -hmm. literally uh, inv uh, involved uh, wars, uh, wars on Iraq and Libya, Afghanistan, the list. It's funny how they always end up being Muslim countries. But anyway, um, so th th this is not a, just a, a benign uh, intellectual uh, space. It is actually weaponized and, um, uh, and, and countries have been attacked and, and literally hundreds of thousands, not millions of people have been killed in the name of freedom, which is Western liberal secular freedom. Of course, it's not some abstraction. It has a particular, as you say, hegemonic uh, configuration. It has a particular asymmetry. The, the asymmetry of power is very clear because, you know, we send bases into the Far East, America does to near China and so on. How many Chinese bases are there off the coast of California or how many uh, off the, co the coast of France? None. So you clearly get a sense of where the direction of travel is when it comes to military power and ideology. And um, so, and of course, everyone sees this apart from the West, I think. We, the West, we tend to think we're just ha hanging out and just doing good things. But actually, there is a lot more going on there under the surface of the ideology. Yes. And it's the same thing that also, you know, this is the same si kind of critique that enriches uh, our sense of racism. We deal with this a lot in the United States. So people say they, they, they tend to want to reduce racism to intent, the intent of the individual or a prejudice that someone holds. And so, you know, there can be uh, white is racist against black and black can also be racist against white. And it's sort of the same response. Well, one of those types of racism is hegemonic, mm -hmm. right? And the other one isn't, okay, <laughs> you know? So that's not to diminish the fact that prejudice and uh, bigotry and all these sorts of things exist. Yes, but when one side is sort of supported by guns and bombs and the police state and surveillance and uh, penalty, like you're saying, you know, with law, and extended prison sentences and all these sorts of things, then it, it, we need to not, not succumb to like the technicalities. Okay. Yes. All categories are oversimplifications. Sure. But the categories enable us to get at a real truth that's happening and a real violence that's happening and hopefully enables us to do something about that violence. Right. So that's sort of the, the point that he's making by situating secularism as a political goal within modernity and within Western modernity. Mm. Um, and so he says that it's not the only political goal. There's other political goals of Western modernity. Among them, he identifies constitutionalism. He identifies um, moral autonomy. This is a big one uh, when it comes to now we're <clears throat> trying to express our autonomy with our gender and choosing it or debates about the hijab and who's able to choose and who has false consciousness and these sorts of things. 
Right. And, and, uh, and also, I mean, I, I did a tweet, I know this is slightly off, off the subject, that uh, I, there's a wonderful photograph uh, uh, in the t- London Times, I think it's in Reuters, uh, uh, taken in America, uh, protesters uh, against the recent Roe versus Wade uh, ah. Supreme Court decision, uh, yeah. basically rendering that history. And the photograph showed uh, a woman holding a placard saying, my body, my choice. So I took that photograph and I put above it, I put um, the beautiful quote from the Quran, but very roughly paraphrasing, saying everything in the universe belongs to uh, God. Um, yes. In other words, it's a, a counter narrative. Uh, women's bodies, our bodies, everything in the universe, the universe itself, belongs to God, actually. It doesn't belong. It's not our private property. We can use and abuse as we see fit. So there's a fundamental clash of metaphysics or worldview there between the the, the feminist moral autonomy argument yes. and any, I think, religious perspective, be it Catholic, Muslim, Jewish, and so on. I mean, it has a very different metaphysics. And and this, for me, is the fundamental philosophical clash of, of, the, of the world mm-hmm. between those who reject the transcendent and want to focus exclusively on the dunya and those who have uh, recognized the the transcendent however they may characterize it but nevertheless mm. they recognize it fantastic yes and and the irony is that people of faith realize that they are making metaphysical claims and that they have metaphysical commitments whereas people who believe in the what halak would call the theology of progress they don't realize that yes. they indeed have metaphysical commitments they would mm. rather argue their uh, case based off of other sort of tactics like the inevitability inevitability of history and progress and these sorts of things, yes, um, yes. moral autonomy. They don't realize oh, that. I, 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 just in, sorry, I probably just want to. Oh, no, a friend of mine has seriously said to me as an argument, because uh, my views are not necessarily completely in accord with the zeitgeist. He says, "How can you how can you say these things in 2022?" And I'm thinking, uh, "So what's the time? What's the calendar date got to do with anything?" Right. <laughs> but yes. this. This was meant to be a serious point. He's made this point several times as if the mere flow of time Mm. can have any relevance to uh, morality, ethics, God, obligations to the transcendent. But for him, this was a serious point. And it's not an unusual point, uh, but this, this kind of inevitability of progress. So yesterday, so today is better than yesterday and yesterday is better mm-hmm. than the day before. This kind of inexorable, to, which is completely false. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, it, it's been debunked uh, by many uh, thinkers who, who just reflect on it for five minutes. It's completely false, obviously. As our world goes into environmental catastrophe uh, and, and war, we're, we're not going in, a, we're going in a very different way, unfortunately. Definitely. Yes, excellent. And uh, Asad actually uh, unpacks a lot of things that go into what makes that viewpoint possible in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't get to it in the intro, but he gets to it later in the book, right. um, talking about, uh, and this is why he calls his book Formations, which is kind of, like you said, a, a mysterious title. Mm-hmm. But what he means by formations are basically like categories and concepts through which we think about things and how they not only come and go, but they shift over time. Right. So uh, he wants us to pay particular attention to certain concepts such as the sacred, such as secular, religious. Right. Th- these are fairly new concepts. Um, and he'll go into further detail about that later in the book. But the idea is that the formation of the concept itself 
and it's being kind of packed in with meaning and associations and oppositions to other things shapes the way uh, shapes the possible opinions that we can have about something and shapes our our sensibilities right so that somebody would have that sensibility it, and they've been saying this for you know probably over 100 years it's like maybe someone 100 years ago was saying like come on you know uh great grand great 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 grandfather of of Paul Williams you know like uh, it's 1913 like get with the time <laughs> Right. Yeah. So you get with the yeah. National Socialist Times. Yeah. The latest thing on the block. Yeah, exactly. So there's a certain there's there's certain um, philosophical moves that have been put into place historically that enable that viewpoint to to even emerge in the first place uh, and, and have somebody come to the conclusion that that just makes sense. A sensibility. Uh, like you said, why would you even assume that things would progress that that assumes a certain subject? Right. It assumes a certain teleology of history. It assumes a certain, as we said, metaphysics, right? That um, we have this, and I don't want to tip the hand too much because he'll get into basically how when secularism kind of uh, took over or displaced other ways of experiencing the world, um, it created a certain imperative of moral progress. And this idea that uh, history was just accumulating progress, which is very different from the teleologies that we find within traditional faiths or yes. other pre-modern teleologies, which is like, yeah. the world's going to end and it ain't going to be pretty, exactly. right? Is, exactly. is kind of, you know, most world religions kind of take that kind of perspective. Now we've got this very, very radically different one. Uh, I'm not, you know, vain enough to say that it's unprecedented, but I'm not aware of any other sort of worldview that, and that antecedes this sort of enlightenment worldview that no, actually things are just going to get better and better and better. And we're constantly, because now we're using reason and reason is cumulative and we're just going to keep building, building, building. There might be bumps in the road, right? Um, but we're going to keep on getting better until we reach this utopia of human pleasure and autonomy. And As I said, this is clearly uh, not the case. I, I'm not sure how many people still subscribe to this myth. Uh, well, maybe that's the popular zeitgeist, actually. But anyone who reflects, as I say, we were talking about environmental catastrophe, uh, which is a planetary issue, a possible uh, catastrophe in an unprecedented way. I mean, this is obvious and uh, and it's in our face and it's beginning to happen now. And no one denies that, even though mm. those who deny that, that you know, man may have caused and attribute it to natural science, everyone's agreed it's happening. Right. Um, so we, we can't look complacently on our future. Um, we are mm. radical action. But you're right, traditional faiths, traditional worldviews have always seen as kind of downward spiral towards uh, an eschatology, which is not very rosy, but the kind of Star Trek idea of, you know, going boldly forth into the universe with Captain Kirk or Jean-Luc Picard, you know, always the rosy future where all these species or, you know, this is just um, pie in the sky. We're, we're living in a in extremely dangerous times and there's no guarantee that we'll come out of it alive. But of course, for Muslims, as I was saying earlier to, to another friend, I think, Islam is an optimistic religion. It's a religion of hope. The Sunnah is hope because God is in control. That is very clear. It's clear in the Bible too, actually, that God is not only the owner, but has control over all things. And at the end of the day, all things will be well. Uh, God's will, I mean, will, will prevail regardless of the seeming chaos in, in our own lived situations, I think. Very much, yes. And uh, you said a really interesting thing, which is about how it's in everybody's face. And but what what accounts for the differences and how we view it is our interpretation of those facts. Right. And so 
the person who thinks, oh, you know, come on, Paul, get with the times, it's 2022, yes. you know, they would view all of those catastrophes as only indicating the incompleteness of the liberal project, right? And so what we need is more autonomy. <laughs> yes. more, more, more poison, to, and yeah, then the patient more, will get better. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Whereas, you know, if you, if, you know, and, and that's a metaphysical position, but, you know, a different metaphysical position is like, actually, no, this is indicative of the soon-to-be collapse, perhaps, of this entire uh, worldview, or at least an indication that it's not sustainable, that this is not and uh, a blip that this is actually the result of the system that you're pursuing. Uh, so fighting the ground for people who are interested in Dawa, you know, that's one of the grounds upon which Dawa has to be fought. You know, you take somebody who is a feminist uh, or sort of, you know, a radical uh, supporter of some of the more modern ideologies, and they, they, they have this tension in them where they simultaneously believe that we're getting more and more free when it comes to individual autonomy, and yet the world is more and more sick and the environment is is you know teetering upon destruction right that's a real weakness to exploit when it comes to a conversation with somebody because uh it is a point of tension and it's it's not apparent and despite the lip service that you know feminist ecologies and and this and that you know sort of subfield of uh, of academia kind of give lip service to well if only we implemented feminism better then we would have a non-coercive, non-violent, et cetera, et cetera, relationship to the environment. But the proof is in the pudding. Where are we? You know, what's happening right now? I mean, but this, I mean it's the old trope, I know, but, you know, the Marxists are often reproached for, you know, look, look what's happened to communism, look how awful communism has been in history. And say, ah, but we haven't really tried real communism yet. Yes. Even though we yeah. tried in the Soviet Union, we tried in China, <laughs> we tried it here and there, and the result in literally hundreds of millions of deaths, still we need to try it again and right, it will right. come right this time how many times do we have to make the same mistake before we realize there might be something wrong with the idea in, in itself that we can yes. create a utopia the, the thought being in my view that we can create a utopia on earth uh, huh. without, without recognizing i mean it's a different subject but i think there's a fundamental flaw in the whole idea of this uh, dunya inspired utopian vision which uh, islam mercifully is completely free of and you know the the, the, the perfect world we, we aspire to, of course, is uh, uh, heaven or paradise, uh, God willing. So, Oh, it's right. It's right there. It's right in the conversation because it depends on, you know, and I think that there's no more fundamental difference between a person who believes in an afterlife and a person who doesn't. Right. Mm -hmm. and that's that's one of the more sort of um, exposing, I think, tensions or points for those who believe in kind of the, the secular account that, oh, well, your personal beliefs don't matter. Like, oh, no, they do, actually. <laughs> like, the, the theological commitments that you hold matter everything, honestly. Mm -hmm. And somebody's, uh, their sense of morality, their, their sense of imperatives, what are the things that threaten them? What are the things that guarantee their security and safety? They're perhaps not influenced by anything more than whether they believe in an afterlife or not. Um, and I, I know, think it's one of the great, great myths of our time that because we live in a, a mass society. Oh, little old me, I'm I'm just one little atom amongst many, many, many people. It doesn't really matter what I believe. It's of no consequence mm -hmm. because I'm just one mm -hmm. individual. And this sense of the, 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 the mass dilution of moral responsibility of just one person. But of course, it's not the case because before God, we are ultimately one to one. Or we are alone with God. And so mm -hmm. our beliefs do matter. But the, the kind of mass secularism gives the illusion to some that they can kind of hide away in a, in a corner of a crowd and it doesn't really matter what they think. But of course, 
we know metaphysically or theologically, actually, we, our beliefs are held to account by one who takes us seriously in that sense, I suppose. Yes, yes. I mean, even the, I mean, and this is a tangent, but uh, even bad theology has horrible side effects. Like, look at sort of the, look at all the repercussions that we're still living out because Christianity has based its theology upon false revelation, right? Uh, inauthentic revelation. We have uh, excesses to this side and excesses to that side. And, you know, this kind of doubling down uh, on sort of things that aren't true to the point where now people have gotten a bad taste of it. And they've said, well, you know, all religion is bunk or all organized religion is bunk. Really, they're speaking from their experience with Christianity. Um, the, the, the rivalry between, quote unquote, science and faith is really the rivalry between the ecclesiastical church and 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 science you know we find no such sort of parallel within muslim traditional civilization so you've still got people living out the consequences of bad theology why would we not expect similar or even more consequences from having uh even worse theology <laughs> believing that there's no afterlife believing that this is the only arena of action and reward that we have and so therefore we have to uh, achieve the utopia we have to move towards the utopia here because there is nothing after after we die that's kind of a scary prospect mm -hmm. um, but anyway so so Essed puts secularism as one of the political goals of Western modernity, among others. Consumerism, another one. Industry, um, civil equality, human rights, democracy, uh, and the ones we mentioned before, moral autonomy and constitutionalism. Um, he also points out that uh, modernity is about the proliferation of certain technologies. Mm. Uh, so he talks about the technologies of production, right? the assembly line, industry, uh, technologies certainly of warfare, uh, the nuclear weapon, right? We were talking about previously travel, entertainment, medicine. These are all sort of proliferating technologies that are sort of, uh, def they help define modernity, not so much in what they are or the newness of them, but in their ability to create new experiences of space, new experiences of time, New experiences of cruelty, new experiences of health, new experiences of consumption and knowledge, all of these sorts of things um, mark the modern epoch, right? Um, if we want to give, an, a, a, and they, they might even be able to be described qualitatively. So he talks about disenchantment. That's one of the big ones mm -hmm. that marks what's the quality of this new experience generated by the proliferation of these technologies. One of them is disenchantment. To imagine that by explaining the way that things happen to work mechanistically, we're giving the real account of what actually happens, right. right? We're now giving you the knowledge that you get isn't just any knowledge, it's direct access to reality, as opposed to some sort of myth that you might've believed in before. Um, you know, one thing that we can like look at for an example, we're trying to make it real uh, time. Okay. How do we experience time? When I was at Medina, uh, Medina was still a place where people met up according to the prayer times, mm. right? Which was kind of pleasant. It was also kind of maddening if you're used to being very punctual, but uh, <laughs> it was kind of enjoyable to say, okay, uh, I'll come over after Asr and maybe they don't show up until Maghrib right? <laughs> five minutes really? before before Maghrib, this was something normal, right? There wasn't, uh, people look at you if you were, that, like you were nuts if you said, I'll see you at six o'clock, like on the dot. They, they didn't have that culturally, at least in, in most of the city. 
So this is a different experience of time, right? You're in the masjid and two people are arguing, you know, do we make the adhan at 8.44 or 8.46, right? And it's like, well, is this how we've been experiencing time since the time of the Prophet, or is this a very new experience of time? Right. And is there, and it's not just a matter of technology. Technology is not neutral. Technology carries with it metaphysics. So right. if we break down time into numbers, yeah. quantity, now every second is substitutable. It's homogenized, right? Everything is like everything else. This is different from how we experience time. If we say that, oh, oh this particular time is blessed. This has a blessing in this time, right? Or if I uh, pray Fajr in the masjid, then my whole day is going to be blessed. Allah will bless my time, Yes. right? Uh, two completely different ways of experiencing time. And so the modern proliferation of these sorts of technologies shape the way that we experience things. That's what, in and, the, and the irony is, I agree with everything you, you put very eloquently and beautifully there, but the irony is at the same time, we live in a world after Einstein when there is the general theory of relativity, where we now mm. know that space-time as a continuum is relative so it's right. no longer this absolute as you say unit following unit this is kind of uh, mechanistic uh, mm -hmm. linear understanding of time it's mm -hmm. all very relative to the observer anyway so the paradox is even in this the technology as you say does does make does produce these metaphysical effects but we know in science actually this is not how reality is anyway mm -hmm. um, it's dependent on the observer um without going into uh quantum mechanics and general relativity but it's a uh, it's all very, um, all very bizarre. And that's very fascinating, too, because that shows you that what really is going on isn't reality as such, but mm -hmm. what account of reality is, yeah. is most amenable to the state, right? Yes. Because the state is what benefits from, from uh, administering time in a homogenous, uh, fungible way, right? It, it doesn't really do for the state you know, to work very efficiently. For us to acknowledge, uh, we might acknowledge it as a curio, right? Okay, yeah, relativity, okay, great, you know, quantum physics, you know, you look at something and it changes position. That's very cute. But when it comes to, you know, what time is the bomb going to drop on uh, this village mm -hmm. in, in Yemen, right? It's by, the, it's by the clock and it's by the second and it's by the number. Right. So uh, it, it comes back to kind of what way of looking at the world is most amenable to the secular state. Um, Good stuff. Right. So uh, another sort of uh, thing is so one of the qualitative ways of, of describing what are these new experiences being produced by uh, by secularism and by Western modernity? Uh, one of the ways of of describing it is disenchantment. Like that's one of the qualities. And then another way to look at it is uh, what sort of subject is being assumed or subject is being produced. Uh, so if we have uh, all these technologies that are being proliferated, they're part of modernity, they carry with them a certain logic, a certain even metaphysics. Um, what's the assumed subject? Let's take like the, let's take the, the cell phone, right? Like you've got, we've got these things in our pockets, right? Certainly it assumes a certain individualistic subject, yeah. right? It's not um, meant to be a communal device, right? Somebody looks over your shoulder at your, <laughs> your text messages. You're like, what are you doing? Get out of my business. Right? <laughs> um, and even th that's kind of a quaint example, but it even affects how we interact with other things. This is like, we're talking about, and the, the big stake for us as Muslims is how is our religion changing? Mm. How is our relationship to our religion changing? Mm. Right through the proliferation of these technologies that have certain metaphysical commitments. Right. So uh, I recently read an article on the delilification 
of, uh, of FIP. And I thought that it was kind of an interesting point. They talked about, for example, the way that FIP arguments used to be justified historically, right? In the modern era, people put a lot more emphasis on the delil, show me the evidence, right? Now, this is not to, to paint this as a bad development. This is actually a good development in the sense that um, it's getting people closer to the scriptures, the texts, and it's getting people kind of renewed in a, almost a revivalist sense of reacquainting themselves with this scholarly tradition that we have. But there is also a point there that this system of legitimizing knowledge is a little bit different from what we had before, where if a person didn't have access to the scholarly literature, they would be dependent upon a certain scholarly figure. Mm. They would basically have to take that person's word for it as an authority. Mm. And whether they were right or wrong, they would have to be like, well, that's as far as I can reasonably go, and I'm going to have to take this person's word for it. Now we have the proliferation of digital technology and all these sorts of things. We have access in a different sort of way. So mm -hmm. the authority changes. Now we, we authorize and legitimize our own individual convictions. Uh, am I going to, you know, hold my hands in prayer above my belly button or below my belly button? Or, you know, I want to see the evidence, right? And that assumes a certain subjectivity. That assumes a certain power of the autonomous subject. Like, yeah. you know, who am I to be able to be able to gather everything and sort everything and prioritize between this and that and the other? Again, that's not saying that this is bad per se, but it might have changed the way that we interact with our faith, right? I think another way, which is possibly uh, more be beneficial, I mean, like you, I've got my <laughs> my iPhone. Just to give two round examples, uh, one of my apps here is, is Clubhouse, um, mm. which uh, people may know is, is a uh, you know perfectly halal, as far as I can see, way of interacting in various kind of rooms or something with, with people. Um, and um, there are many uh, Muslim and Christian and other uh, rooms where, where Muslims and others discourse and argue or debate or or just hear mm -hmm. lectures. And, you know, and, and another space is Twitter space. Uh, actually, you know, mm -hmm. I, I've opened a few of those up. And on one occasion, when after I uh, uh, very privileged to speak to a, a brother at Cambridge University who is very familiar with what's going on in India at the moment, particularly the way Muslims are being persecuted in quite extraordinary, horrendous ways. And open up a Twitter space, and we were able to talk about this globally with uh, uh, unknown hundreds of people. But there was a sense of a global community, Uma, speaking from India, Pakistan, America, Britain, France, uh, all over the world, just talking about our concerns and learning about what's really happening. People were in mm -hmm. India were giving their feedback. Extraordinary, the real time actual connection, even though it was just over Twitter, of all things. Um, and that's unprecedented, I think, in the history of the Ummah, where people can just spontaneously gather virtually throughout the planet um, and just share their concerns uh, about what's going on in the Ummah. And, and it doesn't cost anything, and it's reasonably efficient. So those are kind of two examples where technology facilitates global uh, interaction and information mm -hmm. exchange and uh, feelings of uh, out feelings of empathy and sympathy mm -hmm. as well for those who are, are suffering, um, uh, which I never would have encountered before. And, and this is uh, an extraordinary development. Uh, uh, of course, there's a dark side as well. The, the the detachment of sexuality from real life bodily you know communion with male and female and so on it, through pornography and online is is a, a terrible um, scar on our civilization or perhaps globally even and that's something um, to be addressed at another time so there's some real dark sides to this technology mm -hmm. as well as some rather beautiful kind of opportunities to share with other people of faith throughout the world.
Mm-hmm. And that's one of the takeaways, definitely, is that instead of just kind of uh, slavishly uh, accepting what everybody is is telling us or being, uh, we want to be intentional, right? We we want to see the developments as they're happening. And mm-hmm. so we want to be able to use the good uh, and maybe even uh, exploit the weaknesses. We were just talking about points of tension within kind of the, the theology of progress and, you mm-hmm. know, uh, how, like we want to be able to be aware of those points of tension to exploit them for Dawa purposes and, you know, justify and prove sort of our own metaphysical commitments. And we also want to see the the possibilities that are being opened up um, for, for us to collaborate, for us to uh, move forward, for us to actually shape the direction in which we're going so that we're actually uh, helping to shape instead of just consuming, consuming, consuming everything. Yeah. And that's the worry with if somebody just gets up on stage and says, well, uh, I'm going to have my own personal opinions about X issue, but I support the political rights. That to me doesn't seem like a very intentional, mm. aware uh, positionality as to how all of these things are being affected and which way influence is going one way or the other. I think we have to be a little bit more aware so that we're able to sort of shape uh, these sorts of things and help steer them as much as possible in a way that's beneficial to the um. Mm. Um, I think we can. Re- I think that subject's been revisited um, without sort of me- mentioning names. Certain senior Muslim uh, academics in in America have made very bold statements of made- supporting gay marriage. Uh, he, he says it's not a quid pro quo, but it does seem like it to me. You know, uh, well maybe the public space will then respect our rights as Muslims if we respect their rights to do their thing. It sounds like a quid pro quo. He says it's not, but there seems to be a little bit of backtracking there to some extent uh, by him and by others. Because I mean, I, I always had always thought uh, you know, it must. I don't mean to be disrespectful about America, but it must be very difficult being a Muslim in America because the pressures. Uh, because the population, the Muslim population in America, I think, is much smaller than, uh, proportionately, I mean, than, say, in France or, or even in Britain. And, and so the, the, the pressure to conform and, you know, say the right things just to get on in life and not be victimized or lose your job must be huge. Uh, I'm not saying they're not huge in France, but at least we've got numbers in France. And so I kind of think, oh, you know, I, I kind of pressures must be great. But I think that the price one pays in, in a in a faith that is warped out of almost recognition just to kind of make peace in a secular hostile society. I mean, it's not really peace. It's kind of surrender, really, isn't it? It's like, OK, yes. we recognize the hegemony here. We're going to kind of concede this and concede that and concede that. And you end up being, I don't mean to be rude about the Christians, but, you know, certainly in Britain, you end up um, having kind of a secular humanist faith with a religious veneer, which yes. is a lot of Christianity in Britain it is, frankly, it's just secular humanism, uh, which says the word Jesus occasionally, but that's mm-hmm. about it. It's not, the, the guts of it, the heart of it is gone completely and being replaced by secular liberalism, although people don't acknowledge that, but it's obvious, mm-hmm. I think. Very much so, yeah. And, um, you know, it's interesting because sometimes the uh, the old traditional scholars, like they can be written off as, you know, kind of they're out of touch and they don't understand what's going on, but sometimes they can be so remarkably perceptive. So one of the scholars that I was closer to in, in Medina, uh, Sheikh Abdullah Shankiti, some people know of him, he would always tell me because he knew I was from America. And he said, the one of the most important things live together. The Muslims have to live together in America. They have to live side by side. It was almost as if he understood the the gravity. And we have this in the hadith of the Prophet about the the jama'ah, right? There's a sort of inertia that is really, really important for us being together, neighbors, a critical mass. 
because yeah. it's going to keep someone from being in, in that isolated situation where they feel like they need to make a compromise or they feel like they need to um, step down or package things in too soft of a way. Yes. Um, you're definitely right. Between praying on your own, like, like I mean, or going to the mosque to pray, uh, I don't know, or, or Asa or whatever. It is a, there is a big difference, even though physically I'm doing the same, we're doing the same thing, but to actually mm -hmm. be with uh, um, uh, other Muslims and, and waiting for the prayer and then the prayer itself and then afterwards, this makes a big difference and it kind of creates uh, 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 something that's greater than the sum of its parts. You're creating mm -hmm. uh, an ummah, as you say. So um, there's, there's wisdom in what that uh, your sheikh in Medina said, I'm sure. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, we, we do have that problem and I'm hopeful that we're, we're becoming more aware of it. And as you said, sort of walking some things back now, um, but uh, especially uh, previously we had talked about redemption and Islam's ability to redeem the space and it, it's ripe for being redeemed, but we have to have the confidence and even the boldness um, to allow it to redeem and not change it for a small gain. And uh, I'm sure you're probably aware, but uh, there's a history, a historical precedent to kind of what happens to religious sects and denominations in the United States, especially. And the Christians dealt with this pretty much exactly a hundred years ago, like when uh, evolutionary theory was first like really, really going mainstream. And you had these sorts of things. This is the split between the mainline Protestant denominations and the evangelical denominations. And essentially the, uh, the, the mainline Protestant de denominations got bit by the bug of reform in the sense of uh, very much secularizing. And now we're buying up their churches and turning them into mosques. Yes. Right. Uh, so that it's the writings on the wall. And I feel like we're, we exist in a very much a similar moment as Muslims in North America and our issues are different, but it's the same sort of principle. Are we going to let ourselves become the secularized, uh, you know, uh, sort of Islam, or are we going to kind of hold at the barricade and kind of, uh, keep our, our identity? Yes, you yeah, no, I just want to ask. Obviously, I'm not in in the states, and you're obviously American. So, what's your sense amongst American Muslims? Is there a lively awareness of being part of a global ummah, or is it very much oh, we're American Muslims, and this is our this is our reality in our country and our you know? Or because you you are a small part of a huge, vast global ummah, which is what right. nearly two billion people. And, uh, you know, with a great history that goes back 1,400 years, obviously, mm -hmm. is there that awareness? Because that seems to me part of the solution. If one is mm -hmm. aware of this global interconnectedness, uh, communion, to use a Christian word, or, or, or fellowship, uh, or, or is one looking, or, or, or do Muslim, American Muslims, are they, are they quite insular? Because notoriously, mm -hmm. politically, I mean, I, I've been to the States a few times as well, known that Americans generally don't tend to be that politically aware of what's going on in other parts of the world. You know, if you read the press at all, it tends to be quite insular. Of course, America is a superpower. So it's got, you know, it's understandable if they're a bit lazy about thinking about other people's needs and concerns. But, but, but so is that reflected in the American Muslim experience or is this awareness of a global community, do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, one of the problems about the United States is that it's so big yeah. uh, that, you know, the uh, just, enormously vast that uh, the experiences vary so much, right? So you have in, in our city, Utica, you have people who just came and they live on a block with people from their own village and they have a very dense social fabric and they have this sort of sense of connectivity. There's some families that go on Umrah every single year. 
right? Um, and they they do feel that connect. They have the you know the television channel with the Kaaba, you know, on twenty four seven, and so there's the or and they homeschool or they go to Islamic school, and so uh, you can structure, and that's the benefit of the United States is that we still have the freedom and the traditions to structure your life as you want so that whoever wants to create that sensation of connectivity can. Right. But, but if you come at it with sort of an assimilationist mentality where you want to kind of, okay, what's shaping your decision-making? Okay. Maybe you're going to move to the suburbs because you can get a bigger house there and it can be a better school district, but you're going to be the only Muslim in class, right? Uh, Now the gravity has completely changed. Yeah. You know, you're concerned, and this is, you know, Dean and Dunya, you're making, you're making choices at the end of the day, and you're showing your priorities. If you're going to uh, get into a better school system, but the trade-off might be that, yeah, you're going to have much less of a sense of ummah, uh, much less of a sense of, and that's not to paint things with a simple brush. There's ways of, uh, of tweaking it and kind of building your own experience. But these are the sorts of things you can find extremely different experiences and extremely different sensibilities, even with a very, very small geographical space. Um, depending on uh, how kind of the the family is going about things. Mm. So I can't speak to one particular overall experience, but yes, you find everything. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. It, it, it is a huge country. It's one thing that impresses visitors. I know who, who go to the US. It, it, it's a, a vast, well, it's a federation. It's a collection <laughs> of, of different spaces and almost different countries in, in their feel and their geographical location and the uh, weather and the cuisine and uh, it's not like France, which is not only smaller, but much more homogenous uh, with a single unitary state. Here you have a, a much more diffuse and vast system. I think. Yes. And so we, when we, this comes into play, like when we see reactions, like when we saw the reactions for in, in Birmingham, for example, uh, standing up to kind of the imposition of the, of the sexual education, quote unquote, that they were trying to impose there, you know, the, the sort of denseness of social fabric really does aid those sorts of things, right? Uh, being so diffuse and so spread out in the United States is is probably a challenge um, more than it is a benefit. Though you know it might have some sorts of benefits when it, if something gets bad somewhere, you can easily go somewhere completely different. But sure. there's uh, there's most of the United States remains unexplored to me. I've been in mm-hmm. some states and I haven't ever been to the West Coast, and you know it's just you, so have, you haven't been to California yet. No, never. I've never <laughs> been past uh, past Minnesota. Is the farthest west okay. I've gone. Okay. whole area past Minnesota. I've never been out that far. So it's, I, I, I spoke to a guy at Speaker's Corner on Sunday from California. He said it's a different world. Uh, I mean, he's referring to as an American speaking about the American is completely different from the rest of the United States. He said anyway. <laughs> no, I would believe him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. 100%. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, uh, getting back, I guess, to the last sort of main thread that uh, Talal Asad kind of brings up in this introduction of the book is he's going to kind of tackle head-on secularism's account of itself. So he brings up Charles Taylor, and Charles Taylor is the the exponent par excellence of of secularism. And he kind of recreates some of his arguments and justifications for secularism, Mm. and he basically exposes them or or contradicts them. That's one of the things I enjoy most about, I've just read the introduction, to be honest, is interaction and critique of Charles Taylor, who is a very famous uh, philosopher uh, uh, and uh, expert on Hegel. That's how I know about him. But but yes, he, he beautifully deconstructs his his thought and shows the the implicit assumptions that are operational there in, in, a, in a very nice way. I enjoyed that. 
Yes. So, so he, he talks about, okay, so how is uh, secularism legitimized? What's the myth, right? So um, he talks about the one that usually gains the most traction, and he, he quotes Charles Taylor at length, is about, as we said before, creating a political ethic that is independent of religious conviction, right? Mm-hmm. The assumption there that religious conviction, when it formulates and constitutes the political ethic, that it's going to result in violence. So what do we do? Easy. We separate the two. We put religious conviction into a private sphere. We put uh, your political ethic is independent of that. That governs your public life and everybody gets along. Um, He notes, he notes that embedded in this is some sense of the good purposely left undefined, right? So whereas before the thing that you would pursue as somebody whose political ethic was rooted in your religious conviction right? Would, yes, be a sense of good, but something that is much more tethered, something that is much more uh, grounded in a textual tradition, right? An interpretive tradition, a, a spiritual kind of, um, we could say scriptural, a scriptural tradition. Now it's completely unmoored, right? It's completely unmoored from those foundations. Now that has consequences. One of those consequences is that um, it's in a constant state of renego- renegotiation, Mm, mm. So what is the good? Now you've severed the the link to the scripture, to the scholars and to the the clergy. And now it's just floating in space. Mm. It has to constantly be negotiated. What is the good? What's the good thing? And that's why we see now in this last however many hundreds of years or whatever that we've had secular society, things have changed so much so quickly, right? Because the horizons, it's not just about change. The horizons for possible change have been just exploded. Because the good has become much more liquid and much more malleable. Um, there is no authoritative answer when yeah. it comes to what the good is. It can be redefined. It can be, it can shift this way. It can shift that way. Yeah. The second thing of note, not just in that it has to be consistently renegotiated and it actually sets us up for um, very dramatic shifts and that this is a constant sort of conflict, but it's renegotiated as politics, and this is how politics takes the center stage as opposed to your faith, as opposed to religion or your religious convictions and things like that. Now, your religious conviction is something private. If you want to have a say or argue about what's good in society, it has to be argued as politics and negotiated with everybody else in your society. Um, so this is kind of the, the how secularism is kind of for better or for worse. Uh, but this is kind of how it's, uh, it's being framed here. So when we come to the features, and this is one of the main features of this kind of setup, the, the, the secular setup, supposedly, according to Charles Taylor, is that, yes, we have to negotiate this good, but here's the silver lining. Here's why it's better than previous society. Now we have a horizontally organized, direct access society, whereas previously it was hierarchical. Previously, it was vertically organized. Previously, it was a very, very hard, uh, non-permeable barrier between the clergy and the laity. And if you weren't clergy, you had nothing to do with defining what was good. So now, yes, we're going to consistently redefine what is good every year now, (laughs) every five years, 10 years, 30 years, maybe in the past. But at least everybody gets a say. Now, that is, as sad as we know, is inc- incredibly critical of this idea and beautifully deconstructs it. And, well, better word is debunks it, I think, is about it, to be more accurate. He, he shows that this is uh, just bunkum. It's not true. 
Yes. And he points to three specific things to kind of uh, illustrate the fact and his assertion that that's patently not true, that there is no true, free, equal exchange between members of society. Um, but he wants to point our attention first to notice what has been created as a concept is society in the first place, mm. right? Before this sort of arrangement, there was no such thing as society. Mm. There was, we were talking about the ummah, right? Your sense of ummah. That's not society, no. right? So we've had now an entirely new way of thinking about our relations with other people, the idea of a society is predicated upon you with your personal religious convictions and your kind of public law, me with my personal religious convictions and the public law that we share that we have to cons uh, consistently negotiate. Mm. And so he points to three things. He points to uh, interest groups, pressure groups, right? Lobbies, basically. Yeah. He says, yeah. look at APAC, right? Look at uh, these sorts of lobbies that uh, exert immense control. Well, what got me in, in reading it, so interesting, what got me reading this is, um, where is it? Um, this book, this is a bit random, this, Plato's mm. Republic. Now, I mentioned this written two and a half thousand years ago. I do recommend this, by the way. It's uh, very up to date. Now, the reason I mention this is there's a wonderful, a beautiful critique of democracy, as he uh. calls it, in here. He surveys a whole range of systems, democracy, autocracy, monarchy, tyranny, you, you name it, oligarchy and democracy. And one of the problems of democracy that Plato said two and a half thousand years ago was precisely what you have just said. You mentioned APAC and the pressure groups, but he, he talked about, to use modern language, the vulnerability of this democratic system to pressure from the, these uh, interest groups that, that basically assert their will over the demos, over the people. So this is actually a weakness in democracy and the democratic system, according mm -hmm. to Plato. So I, I thought that was an interesting segue. And I, he didn't mention that Plato had actually come up with this idea theoretically uh, a couple mm -hmm. of thousand years ago. But uh, anyway, he did. He has some interesting things to say about Plato in the in the next part of the book about. Uh, well, I haven't read that, so maybe he does. I beg your pardon. No, I haven't read the oh, whole no, no, he no, he doesn't make the point that you're saying about democracy, but he does he does talk about Plato and sort of the the role of poets versus philosophers, the idea of mythos versus logos, and kind of which is the privileged form of knowledge, and that actually come it ends up being very significant for how religion, the category of religion, was formed and what we associate with religion. Religion as sort of like. Uh, the modern myth, uh, as opposed to the verifiable truth, which is kind of logos. But uh, we'll get there. That's, a, that's a, another conversation there. But so he points to pressure groups, right? He points to these lobbyists and how that this is actually a very, very small elite, right? Yeah. That you have the oil lobby and the Israeli lobby and these closed meetings, dinners, you know, fundraiser galas and these sorts of things. This is where policy is being Form. This is where policy is, and politicians are being influenced. It's not an open access society. It's not open access, horizontal access. This is, this is an elite, elite occupation. You say often clandestine. That's not elected, or, or and so on. And yet it is has a massive disproportionate influence on the democratic process, and and sets the tone that the media then follow, or media maybe are part of this. The only yes. thing you know I mean, and they form what we should think. What is acceptable opinion? What we should think about Israel or LGBT or American foreign policy or or anything. It, 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 and this is how it kind of it, it works, I guess. Yes, fantastic. And that's actually his his second uh, his number two and number three points that kind of subvert and undermine this claim of a, of a, an open access public space, opinion polls and mass media. So he says that we assume and we see an opinion poll that this is merely descriptive of reality, and we don't realize that this is actually use it's a tool to anticipate and also to influence mm -hmm. right um and anybody you know can go 
search online about how statistics can be manipulated. But even as you just said, what questions get asked yes. right in the first place? Like this is something that is, it's not just describing reality in a benign way to us. It's actually controlling and managing the ways in which we think about things and even our emo emotional responses to things. A, 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 an interesting example came up recently in the last few weeks where uh, there's two, there was a Muslim think tank that released some sort of Muslims and suicide. Data that was being presented was sort of indicating that Muslims were at a very, very high risk of suicide, if I'm not mistaken. And it's less, it's less important uh, as to the, um, uh, the kind of facts on the ground as it is to kind of like this point about how our different data produces different imperatives, right? Um, and someone within the Muslim academic sort of sphere challenged these findings and said that this is a mess, that these are not, you know, there's this problem with the method and this problem with the way that the research was conducted. And this is not actually true. You can't make those conclusions at all. And the stake, what is at stake in that sort of debate and argument there was a little bit of back and forth on Twitter, as far as I understand, like, no, like this wasn't like whatever. Yes, it was. But what's at stake is there, there are imperatives and there are assumptions and there are kind of action points that are at stake when it comes to which one is true. Okay. If it's true that Muslims are somehow uniquely in the United States uh, likely to experience suicidal thoughts or this or depression or these sort of things, then people will point the finger where they'll point it towards out of touch leadership and they'll point it, point it towards, you know, Oh, maybe this is a backwards religion or maybe that, you know, it's not, uh, you know, getting with the times, there's all these sorts of uh, imperatives that could be formed. Mm. Whereas if the findings are the opposite, if we're actually doing better than everybody else with suicide, the, the, the script is completely opposite. It's like, Oh, well, look at how amazing Islam is. It actually regulates our emotions much better than anybody else. And so we have less pressure to conform, less pressure to reform, less pressure to do all these other sorts of things. So opinion polls are not merely descriptive. They're all, they're often used to anticipate and to influence. Mm -hmm. And similarly, as you said, the mass media, right? The mass media, how things are presented. Obviously we see this every time Palestine is attacked, uh, you know, all of the images are from the Israeli cafe where somebody had to put down their latte and they were afraid for their puppy, right? Where the, um, you know, the Palestinian children are starving and, and getting slaughtered and, you know, torn apart limb from limb, uh, which we don't see, right? Because we're kind of presented with certain images and we're presented with uh, when, when uh, Palestinians kill, you know, it, it's always, you know, in that sort of active tense where in the, the Palestinian is killed, it's always in the passive voice and all these sorts of things that are very, very well known that they do in order to kind of shape the way that we're emotionally responding and processing these sorts of realities. Mm -hmm. So all of this to, to say that, yes, that this is not a, um, this is not at all a, uh, an equal free public space society to exchange ideas and, and, and things like that. Um, that and, and Esad has a very useful way of thinking about it. He's like, if pre-modern governance is about brute compulsion and force, um, liberal governance is not based on the opposite, which would be consent and negotiation, but rather something perhaps in the middle that he calls statecraft or what Foucault would call governmentality. So basically it's, you know, this method of discipline right? In attempting to put discipline in spheres that are fairly secretive and not very apparent. But then when we have to, we always have the emergency powers and we always have the martial law we can resort to if necessary. Um, 
that was the the one main sort of uh, feature that uh, that Essa takes issue with when it comes to the main sort of uh, account of what secularism is uh, or why it's good or why it should exist. So he says, okay, well, if we don't have a horizontal direct access society, a, a free open public space, then perhaps we should rethink this entire thing that why is secularism particularly advantageous over another sort of system of, of managing sort of uh, belief and uh, non-belief or, or whatever have you. Perhaps there are other ways. The other thing that he points to is the, the move that happens within secular societies is one towards individualist citizenship. So this is one of the main, main features of uh, secularism. Whereas, and this is the second aspect of where the political becomes the real, mm. right? Um, it's the transcend, uh, the, the transcendent political identity is the real identity. Who are you really, Paul? You're really British, right? What does your passport say? You look at the map and it's all beautiful colors, and it's all thinking through the nation state. We almost can't think through anything but the nation state. We have, and we have all these sorts of rituals to, to reify and, and fortify this way of thinking about. We have the World Cup, we have the Olympics, we have, you know, all these sorts of things that, you know, we actually are <laughs> in our town. There's actually sort of a, a soccer tournament that happens or a football tournament for, for you all where it's organized by nationality. And so we were actually as a, as a masjid thinking, let's organize a team for the masjid. But we can't because the logic of the tournament is based off of nationality. So you see how this kind of foregrounding of the political as the real is actually, and this gets into to a halak, actually a hindrance to us as Muslims. Yeah. Because part of this Muslim power has been built off of this sort of transnational or supranational yeah. sort of yeah. super political sort of organization. Now we're forced through the nation state. I, I now, do, I've just come across as a, a, a quote, uh, a while I'll have that quote I keep on my iPhone. It's so good. Um, he's a professor at Columbia University. Um, he, um, let me have a look. Uh, he's written lots of uh, amazing books. This is another one I'm reading at the moment called The Impossible State. Um, Islam, politics, and modernity is a moral predicament. So it overlaps uh, quite a bit in some ways with this book we're reviewing uh, today that Imam Tom is telling us about. But this quote um, from Professor Halak, one of my favorites, if I may just read it out, it's a short one. Let us remember what secularism is. Secularism is not just segregating religious life into the private sphere. It is rather the determination of the state of what religion is and mm. is not, where and how it can be and where and how it can be exercised. In terms of political theology, secularism is the murder of God by the state. This is the quote earlier on. I couldn't quite remember. In terms of political theology, secularism is the murder of God by the state. The state can delimit, limit, exclude or curtail any religious practice and thus has the power to determine the quality and the quantity of the religious sphere as it sees fit. So that's Professor um, Halak. And I think that is an extraordinary, extraordinarily insightful um, unveiling of the realities of secularism, its official self-presented ideology and the realities of it, particularly in terms of its political theology. It murders, secularism is the murder of God by the, it doesn't mean literally, of course, but he means in terms of uh, uh, political theology, uh, the state replaces God, the state becomes a God. And of course, mm -hmm. that is the ultimate uh, Kufa is the ultimate shirk, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, from an Islamic point of view, of course, because 
um, well, for obvious reasons. Yes, and this is where we really need to be aware and careful about all this quid pro quo stuff, right? Because if we think that by uh, gaining access to a certain kind of power and making certain sort of concessions to get approval within the, the kind of arrangement of politics as is, we might think that we're guaranteeing our rights and we might think that we're guaranteeing our safety. But what we might not realize that we're doing, we might be actually submitting ourselves to these forces to shape what our religion is and what we call it, right? And so we might end up with something that they're calling Islam and they are teaching our children as Islam. And we even have certain people within the Muslim uh, sort of scholarly sphere or academic sphere telling us that this is Islam. And in reality, it's actually, I think you had used the word previously, truncated uh, version or this sort of reformed Remeaned Islam, which is really something that is within the within the control and disciplinary kind of structures. Exactly. of Exactly, and, and the problem there, of course, is there is a president in Christianity which has reformed itself quite literally at the Reformation. But you know, they'll point to Christianity. But Christianity has changed its fundamentals; is continually changing its fundamentals in some churches. I would argue. So why can't Muslims do the same? Well, it's not like that. It's a completely different dynamic, and Islam is the fundamental. Uh, final statement of God to mankind. It doesn't need to be reformed. It just needs to be understood and obviously followed. So there's a misunderstanding of whole the nature and the mechanism uh, in, in equating Christianity and Islam as if they were somehow comparable. In that sense, they're not. Christianity is seen by Muslims, obviously, as something that has gone astray in certain fundamental ways, in certain of its doctrines. And, and so that Islam is the final statement, the pristine final statement of God to man. And there's nothing more to change. That's it. Right. They're essentially asking us to unmoor ourselves or untether ourselves from that that inertia, that gravity of the text of the, you know, um, he, as said, references in kind of passing, reading the Bible as literature, this kind of movement to read the Bible as literature and how, you know, despite claims from uh, the people who are engaged in this sort of project that this isn't offensive to religion. Um, it's exactly an exercise of secular power that enables that statement in the first place. Yes. Right. To to think to to even consider reading the Bible as as literature or the Quran for that matter, and then to assert that this is not offensive to religion. Right. This is secular power par excellence. Absolutely right. Now I read that. I thought that was a brilliant thing because it is. It's a secular. It's a secular takeover of the Bible in this particular case. And whilst pretending that nothing has happened, it's just a just treating it as a, no. You you have just detached it from the whole point of the Bible as Christians conceive it anyway, which is revelational word of God. And it's no longer That's a sacred text. It's a secular text like. I don't know, a, a, a Sherlock Holmes or Shakespeare or something else. Um, right. Li yeah. Just literature. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so the, the last points that I had written down on my notes were exactly sort of, it's, it's very, very um, appropriate that you had brought that quote from Halak because mm. the points that uh, Esad makes are essentially just fleshing out those points that Halak had stated so uh, eloquently and succinctly about, okay, if the secular state is going to tell us that it is a reduction of violence and a reduction of religious violence, and this is actually the only way to live in peace, uh, Esad and others, definitely Halak would say that no, it's just that the objects or targets of the violence have changed and uh, have been kind of hidden from us in certain ways. So where is the violence? We talked about, you know, reading the Bible as literature, that is a type of, of violence. But um, being able to, first of all, define what is granted status as private, what belongs as private religion and what belongs in public law, that is a, a form of power. Right. Like 
that's the, the secular power kind of at the most foundational level, mm. right? The secular state gets to define what is a religion. And we've seen this before when it comes to in the United States, we have religious exemptions for various things, for vaccine, vaccine sometimes and for military service or whatever. And so the Supreme Court often has to adjudicate what is a religion and what is not a religion. You know, what is even sincere religious belief and what isn't, which is kind of an irony for people who really would like to cling to the idea that secularism is simply separation of church and state. That's not true at all. Uh, secularism is the production of a certain type of religion that's amenable to the secular state. Um, and so that is sort of the first arena. Where do you d- divide the line? What's religion and therefore private? What is, uh, or which religion gets to be private? And as we've talked about before, which religion gets to be public? Like, for example, the public evangelical support of Israel and et cetera, et cetera, uh, one nation under God. This, this gets to be public. This gets to be enshrined within institutions. Um, and then others don't, right? So this is all power, right? This is all power that gets to decide where do we put this? What gets considered here? What gets considered where? The second uh, arena of secular power who is granted the ability to reason privately and who is not? Okay, so um, this is one thing where Esad gives kind of the, the situation of some sort of terrorist event or terrorist act. Okay, if it's a, a Muslim who commits the act, what's the response? People go grasping for motives and ideology. And, oh, was he influenced by, uh, was he like a Wahhabi or Salafi influenced? Did he read Ibn Taymiyyah, right? Uh, oh, this verse in the Quran and that verse in the Quran. Every single time this happens, this is the kind of uh, attention that, that comes through the media. And there's a, a secular power that's at play here because the Muslim subject is considered unable to Yes. exercise any sort of interpretive reading. He is constricted, but he's not able to, to privately reason. He's bound or constrained to read the text in only one way. Yes. And so uh, Islam either is essentially violent or this particular subsect of Islam is essentially violent. And he read this and he saw this and therefore he had to go do what he did. Whereas if a Christian or an atheist or anybody else, nobody would say, well, okay, there's an atheist that just shot up a school. And this happens to us in the United States a lot. It's like, oh, he must have read Marx. You know, it's like nobody would say that. It literally wouldn't make any sense because if you are of a certain positionality or subjectivity, you're granted the right of privately reasoning, right? You're assumed to be able to reason privately. So this is another power of the secular state in deciding who, who gets to reason privately. Uh, or, or, and who or even who gets labeled as a terrorist in the first place. I noticed well, when terrorist well, events, I mean, I'm not going to, we're going to all the news events, but there are a whole series of uh, violent events motivated by uh, ideology, nothing to do with Islam, where these, these people are not called terrorists, even though yes. they have clearly targeted the public to kill yes. them in the name of an ideology Right. And they're still not called terrorists. <laughs> but lo, if a Muslim does it, ah, immediately they're terrorists. And I, I'm just staggered that no one, I say no one sees this, because a lot of people see this extraordinary uh, Islamophobic inconsistency. But it just seems that the media, I mean, are apparently respectable journalists and, new, and, and, right. and news channels just repeat this. And like BBC does it as well, you know? And I'm just, yes. I'm, I'm constantly, constantly struck by the inconsistency uh, of labeling the. Well, the question we have to ask is why, like why this, like this, this inconsistency is ubiquitous. Everybody knows it, but why does it exist? It exists because Islam is a particularly anti-secular force. And so it is the legitimate object of discipline and legitimate, right? Whereas 
other types of uh, subjectivities or other types of tradi uh, traditions or, or targets don't attract the same attention, mm -hmm. right? Like this is why, you know, one is rendered as a security risk. And this is Essen's whole thing. It's like, you want to talk about secularism? We're talking about violence if you're talking about secularism. Just because the, the, the borders have changed, just because the map has changed, right? Uh, there's still the secular state is guaranteed or threatened by certain things. And whatever threatens the secular state is the target of the good violence. Mm -hmm. Right. And in this case, you know, yeah. Okay. Like somebody who's trying to, uh, somebody who's a particular type of Muslim subject is, you know, the part, the enemy par excellence of this kind of, uh, of this kind of way of seeing the world. Another example, kind of a little uh, less dramatic is how people uh, read women who wear hijab, right? We have this whole idea of, uh, well, are you forced to do it or not, right? That's always the question on the Western journalist's mind, right? Yeah. Especially, um, especially in France, the default position I've discovered, much to my shock, is otherwise intelligent young people uh, who I've met in France, the automatic assumption is a woman who has a hijab is forced to do it. And the question yes. is, you know, th th there's a man making her wear it. And that is an incredibly stupid and ignorant assumption. It's obviously completely false. But but otherwise, enlightened, educated people have this view. And that's what I still I still find difficulty in processing that, actually. Because if you ask someone at any other subject, they'll be quite enlightened. But when it comes to Muslims, they're not. Right. Well, yeah, well, and that's the other thing, too. It's like if we're looking at what are the hegemonic political goals of secular modernity and which ones are being offended? Why is it so offensive? to a secular modern, yeah. that the possibility of a woman wearing hijab, even the possibility of her being forced to wear it. Why? Because it violates the political project of moral autonomy, right? To imagine that you would have to be obligated, or let's just say duty, let's not use the word forced, because force is actually like a very slippery concept. But like, if someone had the, felt the duty, mm -hmm. right, to, to do something or felt obliged, obligated to do something, we could say, you could make an argument that there's some force in there somewhere. Mm. right? Or some coercion in there somewhere. Why is it so offensive? It's offensive to the secular modern because it violates this hegemonic political project and this hegemonic political goal, right? And which is why we trap ourselves when women justify themselves by saying, it's my choice. Yes. Right? They say, I'm arguing for the hijab because I chose it. Okay, that's great. I support you and your choice. But the fact that we don't get recognition unless we resort to moral autonomy shows us the centrality and the hegemony of that concept, yeah. right? You can't tell a secular modern, I feel obliged to wear it because that's what Allah said. Yeah. Or I feel duty bound to wear it because my family would be embarrassed if I don't. They would say you're oppressed. Yeah. They would say you have a false consciousness. You need to liberate yourself. You need to uh, run away from your family. And we've got all these sort of movies and you know comic books where you can be just like them. Right. Like, so this is this is what Asad is trying to get at, not just the hypocrisy. Everybody can see the hypocrisy. But what's the allergy? The allergy of a secular modern sort of order is the are these things that that undermine its projects of moral autonomy and of, um, you know, this sort of um, particular secular order. And of course, the idea of moral autonomy is a philosophical concept that has roots in a certain understanding of metaphysics. It's not neutral. Yeah. It's certainly not modern in some kind of clinical uh, progressive sense. It, yeah. it, it, it is a philosophical position, which is extremely controversial and arguably completely untenable anyway, theoretically mm -hmm. and, in, and in reality. And Islam, of course, recognizes the reality, the absolute reality of God as creator and sustainer of the universe and owner of ev everything, and which is uh, also the traditional Christian view and the traditional Jewish view. Um, 
and, and that and that is sustainable and, and more profoundly human and humanizing actually than this narrow moral autonomy argument which leads to uh terrible atrocities uh for example the row versus waiting when uh, that, that, that that was um, thrown out or nullified, I don't know what the word is, by the, the Supreme mm-hmm. Court a few days ago. President, uh, uh, the president of France, uh, no, no less, tweeted in English, <laughs> um, lecturing <laughs> lecturing you in the United States about what you shouldn't shouldn't be doing. Extraordinary outburst, but it was it was based on um, uh, on moral autonomy argument, yeah. and that was yeah. his yeah. position. Um, uh, an extraordinary uh, thing, but maybe the French uh, uh, like to lecture other people there about what they should be doing with their lives. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah, that's rich. But but that's a perfect <laughs> actual segue to the, the third point and the third sort of uh, exercise of secular power. And this is my last note for the intro is that um, when is violence necessary or what type of violence is necessary, right? So you look at, you can't deny that aborting a six-month-old fetus is a violence. It's violence. And that's why actually, you know, the, the pro-life, uh, a certain segment of the pro-life movement has tried to bring the that violence back into people's uh, cognition. Mm. And despite their graphic, and I don't like looking at, you know, they have websites and they have posters and it's quite graphic stuff. Uh, I find it very hard to stomach it. But, you know, despite their efforts, it still falls upon so many deaf ears. Yeah. Why? Why? Because that violence is seen as legitimate. That violence is seen as acceptable because it violates moral autonomy. It violates the autonomy of the secular self who's able to, who has, and to Essen cites a very damning quote of Simone de Beauvoir uh, later on in the book about how uh, birthing and nursing are inherently dehumanizing to women um, simply because they're not chosen, right? So we have uh, something that that has to do with, uh, with freeing the secular moral autonomous self is legitimate violence, right? Mm-hmm. Invading Afghanistan to free the women who are stuck in their homes and not allowed to go, you know, uh, leave the homes, etc. That's legitimate violence. Let's drop bombs on them. Right? That's the idea, right? Are we able, what about the half a million Iraqi children? Like Madeleine Albright was asked, worth it, right? So again, people who are imagining that the secular arrangement of things is a less violent or a non-violent arrangement, they're completely, completely wrong. Like it couldn't be further from the truth. It's just that the goalposts have shifted. What violence is considered legitimate okay. and what, what violence is considered illegitimate? The illegitimate violence within the secular order is the religious violence, religiously motivated violence, the jihad. That's why jihad is such a bad word, right? Because it's not just about uh, Islam versus Christianity. It's not just about Islam versus the West. It's the category of violence that there would be somebody it's like an it's like trauma response it's a trigger for the 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 western christian world right to have a religiously motivated violence it's like the worst possible type of violence that you could commit we will register every one person killed for a religious motive as as if it were a million people killed for a non-religious motive that's basically the calculus that's at play here whereas other types of violence they are not only justified, but considered necessary, right? Like whether it's aborting a, a fetus or whether it's, uh, you know, it's trying to, uh, you know, kill the terrorists or this, this threat to the nation state or this threat to the secular order, whatever it is, you know, we will, we will exterminate and we won't hesitate uh, because it's the right type of violence. It's the good type of violence. Mm. Gosh, oh, that's a very succinct uh, and insightful summary. Um, is that me feeling rather depressed? <laughs> rather depressed. <laughs> <laughs> No, it, it's it's true. I, I, um, it's just undeniable. Um, I, I'm just thinking um, randomly. The only country in history that has 
intentionally deliberately drop nuclear weapons yes. on civilian populations, yeah. not once, but twice. Yes. And I'm obviously everyone knows who that country is and when that happened mm-hmm. uh, in the name of freedom, um, uh, literally wiping out hundreds of thousands of people in an instant. And some of these people are still affected by that even today from radiation poisoning. I, I mean, I, I mean, there are arguments to be had about that, but nevertheless, Islamically, um, it is a, a heinous crime to exterminate civilians because Islam, of course, civilians, non-combatants are a protected group. They are simply uh, forbidden uh, in Sharia to slaughter civilians, intentionally targeting them. But it was uh, an instrument of a certain country's foreign policy um, within living memory. Um, anyway, I'm not going to even without even without the the victims. Let's even assume that they never drop it on Japan. Even the even the testing of the weapons. They had to yeah. evacuate islands. They had to, they completely rendered those places uninhabitable. Yeah. Like perhaps permanently. Right. It's yeah. like, it's a different mag, it's a different order of barbarity and violence. And it was all considered completely justifiable yeah. because it's, it's for the secular state. Yeah. Or for secular, for secular freedom. But it's the only country in history has ever done use, use these weapons. Uh, and, um, yeah, we all know who they are and, and so on. So not, I'm not trying to make an anti that country point. I'm just saying that secular democracies have committed these atrocities. And as far as I'm never, never repented of them. It, it's an accepted practice or accepted event in history. And many of them are proud of it even. Um, oh, yeah. uh, extraordinary. Anyway, um, perhaps we should uh, leave it there. I think... Um, Thank you very much indeed, Imam Tom, for your your time, your expertise, your eloquence, your wisdom, your insights. Uh, and uh, is, is, you're always welcome on Blogging Theology. I hope, uh, God willing, you will come back again. Um, and for those who are not aware, we've been talking of uh, Imam Tom has been talking about this book, uh, Formations of the Secular, subtitled Christianity, Islam, and Modernity by Professor Talal Assad. Um, I have my copy. I've only... Uh, read the introduction, uh, but it, uh, in my view, it is certainly worth uh, having a read, um, along with um, my other favourite book of the moment um, by um, uh, Halak, of course, The Impossible State, Islam, Politics and Modernities, Moral Predicament. These are hot books um, if you want to. And one of my all-time favourites, uh, just written a few years ago by a guy <laughs> called Mr. Plato and his Republic, um, a new translation in the Oxford World Classics. In fact, there are many editions you could probably even read it in the original Greek if you were so minded. Um, so <laughs> some recommendations today. So thank you very much, uh, Iman Tom, again. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. Until next time, inshallah. <laughs>